You know, there are American heroes who don't like this idea. Neil Armstrong, Gene Cernan have both testified against commercial spaceflight in the way that you're developing it, and I wonder what you think of that. I was very sad to see that uh, because those guys are, yeah, you know, those guys are heroes of mine, so it's really tough. You know, I, I wish they would come and visit and, and see the hardware that we're doing here, and, and I think that would change their mind. They inspired you to do this, didn't they? Yes and to see them casting stones in your direction. It's difficult. Did you expect them to cheer you on? So they're hoping they would. What are you trying to prove to them? What I'm trying to do is, is to make a, a significant difference in, in spaceflight and, and, and help make spaceflight accessible to, to almost anyone. One of the most difficult choices I've ever faced uh, in life was, was in 2008. Um, and um, I think I had uh, like a, maybe $30 million left, or $30 or $40 million left in 2008. And I had two choices. I could put it all into one company, and then the other company would definitely die, um, or split it between the two companies. And, but if I split it between two companies, then both might die. Um, and you know, when you put your blood, sweat, and tears into creating something, or building something, it's like a child. And so it's like, which one am I going to let one starve to death? I can bring myself to do it. So I, put, I, I split the money between the two. Fortunately, thank goodness, uh, they both came through. What was your biggest failure, and how did it change you? Well, there's a ton of failures along the way, that's for sure. Except for, as I said, for, for SpaceX, the first three launches failed. And uh, we, we actually were just barely able to scrape together enough parts and, and money to do the, the fourth launch. If that fourth launch had failed, we would have been dead. So, multiple failures along the way. Um, I, I tried very hard to, to get the right expertise in for, for SpaceX. I tried hard to, to find a great uh, chief engineer for the rocket, but it, not, the good chief engineers wouldn't join, and the bad ones, well, there was no, no point in hiring them. So I ended up being chief engineer of the rocket. Um, so if I could have found somebody better, then we would have maybe had less than three failures. That third failure in a row, did you think, I need to pack this in? Never. Why not? I don't ever give up. So many people tried to talk me out of starting a ride company, it was, it was crazy. One good friend of mine collected a whole series of videos of rockets blowing up and made me watch those. He just didn't want me to lose all my money. We're doing these things that uh, seem unlikely to succeed. And we've been fortunate, and at least thus far, they have succeeded. Now is the time to take risk. You don't have kids. As you get older, your obligations increase. And once you have a family... Start strong finish strong. Wolf is always scratching. Let's roll. Up at 3.45 a.m., cardio by 4.45 a.m., hit the iron by 6.15 a.m., in my pickup truck by 7.15 a.m., heading to work, ready to get after it, ready to shoot. There's no substitute for hard work. I'm going to make something out of myself, and it's going to be so good, it's bad. Instead of telling you what I think you should be doing, or what, how you could be better, or 
I thought, well, let me just speak from the heart, speak from my gut, and really not have anything prepared, but just tell you what's worked for me. And maybe some of the stuff that's worked for me might work for you now, currently, presently, as you guys have your goals and ambitions, but then further on down the line, as you guys continue to live your life. This idea and this notion that you could be anything you want, you can accomplish anything you want, right? We hear that, you've heard that from the time you were little boys. You hear that now. You're already incredibly accomplished. You guys know that. The thing that has worked for me is to remember the hard times. So, and I'm sure you guys all have your processes. And again, I'm gonna tell you what's worked for me. So before a big movie comes out, before back in the days when I was wrestling with WWE, a WrestleMania match, anything big that would happen, I would always take a moment and I'd just remind myself, all right, I was evicted when I was 14. We were kicked off the island. We couldn't live in Hawaii. Had no place to live. Uh, a lot of shit happened then when I moved to Nashville. I was arrested multiple times by the time I was 16 years old. I would remember that, and it allows me then to be present in the moment and understand, holy the, the stuff I have around me right now. This is the shit that I dreamed of when I was a kid. I am here. I played for University of Miami. Played great teams. Warren Sapp, Ray Lewis, they were my teammates. They were balling. Warren Sapp was playing tight end that time. I was starting defensive tackle. Yeah, they moved him over to D-line. And he looked at me, he's like, yo, dude, I'm gonna take your spot. And I said, you ain't taking my spot. He said, I'm gonna take your spot. I said, no, you ain't. We battled and he took my spot. <laughs> now you can imagine how that with me because there goes my opportunity. He went in, switched the defensive tackle, lit the world on fire. Well, what that did, it crushed me, it crushed my dreams. I had a piss poor senior year, zero production, no NFL, no combine invite, nothing. Finally went to the CFL, Calgary Stampeders, making $250 a week Canadian. Canadian, now, I had to send that home to my, uh, to my wife at that time. Had no money. So I remember that. When I got cut from Canada, uh, my dad in his pickup truck came down four o'clock in the morning, picked me up at, in, in Miami from Tampa. We lived in a little apartment in Tampa. He drove down in his little pickup truck to, to, to Miami to get me when I was cut from the CFL. And I thought, well, f the, I, I leave home like you guys left home. I'm ready to tackle the world, to get after it, achieve my dreams and goals. Crushed by 22, 23 years old. I'm, now I gotta move back in with my mom and dad. I played on great teams though. Wait a second, this is not supposed to be my future. I'm supposed to be in the NFL right now. I'm supposed to be making a lot of coin and buying my parents shit, buying me shit, taking care of my wife, but it never happened. So I pulled out my wallet. I thought, well, let me see how much money I have. I opened it up. I had a five, a one, and change. Well, at least I rounded up to seven bucks. But I thought, God, ain't this a bitch? I got seven bucks in my pocket. Where the f do I go now? What do I do? I can't go back to CFL. The point comes where you hear that voice, the big run's over. Like, you're done. Right, so I heard that voice. So as coach was saying, man, I hold on to that. I'm telling you, I keep my back is up against this mother. We laugh, we joke, we have a good time, but my back is still up against this mother. I do not forget it. What this also helps me do, and again, it works for me, is at some point, you gotta be tired of not being number one. You have to be, and you gotta play angry, and I play angry. Now, I'm cool and calm with my approach, 
And when I step out on my field, which is a set or, you know, like there's some, and you're always going to have haters and haters are like, well, God damn, man, how many movies are you going to make or how much shit are you going to do? Like you do a lot of shit. I say, yes, because my ambition, of course, why not? I could do it. Yeah. I love what I do. And not only that, but in what world do we not work every day? My back is up against this thing, you know, and I, and I, and I started to play angry, by the way, and, and I, still, I still play angry. My last match, Brock Lesnar, transitioned, and I realized if I had to be great at something, I wanted to be great in this world of Hollywood and movie making and producing and entertainment, I had to commit, and like you guys have to commit. Obviously, you commit to something, commit to the goal. So I quietly retired. Two years later, I thought, what did I do with my career? Because my movies were not doing well. I was written off. I was like, it was around 2006, 2007. I was like, I left, I pulled a Jim Brown. I left when I was on top, like number one in the wrestling business. And I left, it was a ballsy, gutsy, some call it stupid move, but I had to commit and I had to follow what was in my gut. What helps me is to keep the hard times in the front of my mind because it allows me to go into these big moments that I've worked my ass off and you guys have worked your ass off. It allows me to go into these big moments with a different perspective. What it also does for me, and again, this, just, this is what works for me. Like, my back is up against this mother Every day, it's against this wall. But it's up against this mother because it's what I believe in. And when my back is against this mother then there's nowhere to go. But that way, that's it. Doesn't mean you don't smile. Doesn't mean you don't laugh and joke, right? You're happy, I'm happy, I'm a happy guy. But when it comes to business and when it comes to executing, it's up against this. And I gotta go that way. And I don't give a fuck who is in front of me. They're not gonna stop me. The key for me was where does it start? What's the anchor? What's the anchor? So I could have all these ambitions and you guys have all these ambitions, which is great. It's important. I'll play this role. You'll play that role. I'll execute this thing and it'll come out this summer. You guys will execute this thing during the summer, right? When it's time to really put in a lot more work. But the key with me is just always finding what the anchor is. And the anchor is getting up at four o'clock in the morning every day before anybody else and grounding my thought process is in the no one will outwork me. No one. I love and I respect you guys. Mother won't outwork me. All starts with this. Two hands, putting it to work. <clears throat> my last match in WWE, I'll share this with you guys too, is that, again, because there's a little bit of takeaway here from all this is I wrestled John Cena and I went in, I think it was 2013, I went in WWE champion and uh, we went in MetLife Stadium. We, we had a record-breaking attendance, which was amazing that night. We accomplished our goal. So I wrestled with John Cena. We had 45 minutes planned for the match. It's nonstop go, right? So your conditioning is tested. And at that time, I, I wasn't full-time in WWE. I was just doing these spot matches where I, would, I was still shooting G.I. Joe, I think, or Pain and Gain at that time. Or, I, oh no, it was, um, it was Fast and Furious 6 in London. Had to travel in the ring, get all my ring work in, travel back to shoot uh, Fast and Furious, then back 
WWE Raw, doing those shows, the big build-up to WrestleMania against John. We get to MetLife Stadium, it's a big night, this is it, it's game night, right? It's, it's, it's championship night for me. 45-minute match planned out. There's no cut, there's no, all right, well, let's pick it back up tomorrow, you know, it's go time, it's just like you guys in a game. At the 15-minute mark, bang! I feel something pop, I'm like, boom, what the f I'm laying there, and both of us are out, I said, oh, fuck, something's going on. And uh, I stick my hand, that was 85,000 people, right? And we're just laid out like this. I kind of roll over, I stick my hand down in my trunks just to see, I want to make sure that there was no bone sticking out. So if there's no bone sticking out, what the f something just happened. Referee comes over and he's like, Rocky, all right? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I think I'm all right. I said, <laughs> I get up, I go to step, and I, I can't step, I can't do this. I have to use my leg like momentum. I gotta do that. So now in that moment, and you guys are gonna have these moments, you probably already had them already, where you're in the game and you're in the thick of things and you gotta make a decision. What I gotta do? I'm gonna stay in the game, I committed to the team, I committed to my team, the whole entire roster, right? So I could tell the ref says, are you okay? And I have one moment, in this moment, it was a defining moment. I could either tell him, no, I'm done. He gives the signal, match is over. Or, let's keep going. We have this decision. And I said, no, let's keep going. I said, how much time is left? He's like, 32 minutes. I'm like, okay. Rest of the whole match, <clears throat> couldn't move. Doing everything like this. I'm getting scared because I'm thinking, man, well, what happens if I, if I, if I pinch something or something like, you know, I don't know, your mind starts fucking with you in the moment. There's 85,000 people, your adrenaline's rushing. I'm thinking, man, what happens if I'm gonna lose my leg or some like this if I've just done something to my artery. Final move of the match is his big finishing move. <clears throat> and I remember I'm getting up and I'm turning like this because I have to fall into him. He's gonna hit me with his big finisher. I remember turning into John and he says, and I remember thinking to myself, God, please don't let this be too bad. Just take care of me. Take care of me. Bang! I feel boom! Now I don't know what the happened. Now luckily the match is over. He pins me one, two, three. Comes in the back. I get to the back. I can't move. Now I'm getting a little nervous. Get on a jet. Rushed home to my doctor's down in Florida. And uh, get an MRI. Find out that I have completely torn my adductor, the top of my, my adductor and my top of my quad off my pelvis. What I was proud of was to walk out on my own, but not only that, but in this moment where the odds are against you, people are watching, your team's depending on you, you either say, I'm done, or this whatever the is going on, it's temporary, and it may me up at some point down the road, but I'm not gonna let this opportunity go by without giving it my all. As you guys know, there's nothing you can't accomplish. You're gonna go on, you're gonna become world champions. The key for me, what I think one of the keys is, remember where you came from, keep that in the front of your mind, and when goes bad and it goes sideways, a lot of does, you're getting booed out of the building, or you're coming through this injury, or people are you writing you off, oh, you guys ain't make it, you know, any of that. You gotta, you gotta keep it in here. And it really has to, it should drive you, it should.
It works for me. It should drive you. You got all the talent in the world. It's all here. Really, the two things I want to say are, you got to be the hardest workers in the room. And don't f*** the opportunity out. I used to spend the night in hotel parking lots. What was I gonna do? I ain't had nowhere to stay, so I lived in the car. I had $35. And I said, come on, God, man, I've been trying to make this dream come true. You done left me out here like this. And I was crying so hard that he just said, I didn't like hear a voice or nothing, but he spoke to me and however he said, if you get up, I'm gonna take you places you ain't never been. Now I was finna quit. So I said, skip it. I'm gonna quit anyway. So I got in my car, I went to a pay phone, and I was gonna call my dad. You remember back in the day where you could punch in a code and call your answering machine and get your messages? So I called and I punched in the code and the he said, doop. He said, hey Steve, this is Chuck Sutton with Showtime at the Apollo. We saw a tape of you, you're very funny. If you could get here Sunday night, uh, we'd love to put you on television. Call me back, let me know if you can make it. So I hung the phone up, I'm crushed. Cause my whole dream of being on TV and I couldn't get to New York. I got $35, how am I gonna get to New York? I can't make it. So I'm standing there at the phone booth and tears just coming down my face. I said, God, so that must be a sign for me to go home. Cause this it, I ain't even got the money to go to the Apollo. My whole thing, I wanted to be on TV, I couldn't even make the dream come true. I'm just, I'm, I'm, this is the most messed up moment. And so I said, man, let me call this dude back and see if he said this Sunday. Cause maybe he said next Sunday and I can hustle up a little bit of money or something. I don't know what I'm gonna do, but let me just call him back. So I call him back. Steve, this is Chuck Sutton, Showtime at the Apollo. We saw a tape of yours, you're very, very funny. Look, we have an opening Sunday night at Showtime at the Apollo. If you can make it, we'd love to put you on TV. I said, it's this Sunday. Before I hit the button, I heard, doop, you have another message. Now, it wasn't there before. So I punched my code in, I listened to the second message. It said, Steve Harvey, this is Tom Sober from the Comedy Caravan. I had, this was a Thursday. He said, I have a gig in Jacksonville, Florida on Friday night that pays $150. If you can get there Friday night, you'll make $150. So I, I called him back and I said, hey Tom, did you get a gig away? He said, no, it's still available. He said, keep swollen. So the joke I wrote was, they was interviewing Mitch Green and he was telling everybody what happened, but his eye took over the interview. And I wrote this joke that his eye started talking and was just, i tell you what happened. The heavyweight champ's fist is coming towards my face. I just said, Lord, Lord, Lord. And I wrote this whole joke about this dude's eyeball talking. And when the punch came, and all this here, the Apollo man, they went crazy. They lost their mind. I got a standing ovation, man. I walked off stage. 
I walked off stage, man, just started crying. I couldn't believe it. And they paid me. I made $750 for being on TV for one night. I'd never made $750 telling jokes in one night. And so that was my first television appearance. A couple weeks later, Sinbad was the host of the show. He got this job at, on a different world. And so he quit. And so Mark Curry became the host. And then Mark Curry got hanging with Mr. Cooper and he quit. And they came to me and said, would you come back to New York and host amateur night for us to just try you out? Oh, ain't no problem. And so I went to New York, I hosted amateur night and I was killing. But every time we went to commercial break, I was supposed to let the warm up act take over like Ruben does. But I knew not to let the warm-up act do that because he would change the attitude of the crowd because Apollo was a wild play. So I stayed out there. I did the warm-up and the hosting. And I created a bond with that audience. And that's how I got on TV. It was my very first TV show. I hosted Showtime at Apollo. I ended up being the longest-running host in the history of Showtime Apollo. I did that show for eight years. Nobody ever did it for eight years. And that was my turn-back moment. See, in your life, everybody has a turn back moment. You have a moment where you could go forward or you can give up. But the thing you have to keep in mind before you give up is that if you give up, the guarantee is it will never happen. That's the guarantee of quitting, that it will never happen, no way under the sun. The only way the possibility remains that it can happen is if you never give up no matter what. Because God is always coming. He's never too late. At your, at your worst moment, look man, when they told me I had to be in New York, I saw no way I could get there. But that God don't. He make the phone ring. I end up in Florida, I make $300. Then I go to New York, I make $750. Almost got a thousand dollars out of nowhere. That's that's what happened to me. That was my my moment of never giving up. That's when I first learned that faith was everything. That that you have to remain faithful. I think the definition of greatness is to inspire the people next to you. I think that's what greatness is or should be. It's not something that's, that, that lives and dies with one person. Mm. It's how can you inspire a person to then in turn inspire another person that yeah. then inspires another person. And that's how you create something that I think lasts forever. Yeah. And uh, I think that's our challenge as people is to, um, is to figure out how our story can impact others and motivate them in a way to create their own greatness. There's a quote from uh, one of my English teachers at Lower Marion named uh, uh, Mr. Fisk. He had a great quote that said, rest at the end, not in the middle. And that's something I always live by. You know, I'm not gonna rest, I'm gonna keep on pushing now. There are a lot of answers 
that I don't have, even questions that I don't have. But I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep going, and I'll figure these things out as we go, right? And you just continue to build that way. So that, I try to live by that all the time. And what brings you the most joy right now? Being with my family. Really? That is, man, that is the most fun. It's just, um, you know, it's uh, hanging out with them all summer, uh, being able to, to, like, do things that I ordinarily couldn't do. Yeah. Because uh, of training, because of sure. season and stuff like that. So being around them and watching Bianca grow up, because there are a lot of things that I miss with Natalia and Gianna because mm. I was playing. So being there every day with them is so much fun, man. So uh, it brings me the most joy. What does love feel like? Hmm. Happiness is such a... I don't really think I would describe love as happiness. I think I'd describe it as a beautiful journey. Mm. Um, you know, it has its ups and downs, right? Whether it's in marriage or whether it's in the career, you know, things are never perfect. Yeah. But through love, you continue to persevere and you mm. move through them. You move through them. And then through that storm, beautiful sun emerges. Yeah. Right? And inevitably another storm comes. And guess what? You ride that one out too. Yeah. So I think love is a certain determination and persistence to go through the good times and the bad times with the someone or something uh, that you truly love. My parents were, were great. You know, growing up, you know, they instilled in me the importance of imagination, of curiosity, and understanding that, okay, if you want to accomplish something, I'm not just going to sit here and say, yes, you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can, but you have to also put in the work to get there, right? So they taught me that at a really early age, man. And uh, when you grow up, as a kid thinking that the world is your oyster, all things are possible if you put in the work to do it. You know, you grew up having that fundamental belief. My mom was there on a daily basis. Uh, my father uh, was really influential at a really critical time where I, you know, I had a summer where I played basketball when I was like 10 or 11 years old in a very prominent summer league in Philadelphia called the Sunny Hill League. Where my father played, my uncle played, and they were like all-time greats yeah. and some stuff. And, Will Chamberlain played in the league, you know, uh, Earl of Pro Monroe played in the league. And here I come playing and I don't score one point the entire summer. Really? Not one. How old were you? 11, 10, 11. And you're playing against other 10, 11 year olds? Uh -huh. or, and you didn't score once? Not one. Were you in the game? I was in the game. How'd you not score? Because I was terrible. Really? <laughs> yeah. That At 10, 11 years old, you were that terrible. Awful. I mean, I, you know, and I had these big knee pads on because I was no. growing really fast. I had socks all the way up here and I had like the high top skinny, fade, yeah. like skinny as hell. And I scored not a free throw, not a nothing, not a lucky shot, not a breakaway layup, zero points. And I remember crying about it and being upset about it. And my father just gave me a hug and said, listen, whether you score zero or score 60, I'm going to love you no matter what. Wow. Now that is the most important thing that you can say to a child. Because from wow. there I was like, okay, that gives me all the confidence in the world to fail. I have the security there. But to hell with that, I'm scoring 60. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> right, right. Right, and from there I just went to work. And I just wow. I stayed with it and I kept practicing, kept practicing, kept practicing. You know, when you're in, a, in this culture, in our society, you can do some phenomenal things individually, um, but they'll never reach their full potential unless you do them collectively. And you have to figure out how to do that. The challenge for me was always uh, compassion and empathy. I think about 09, things started changing for okay. me. I started really uh, making a conscious effort 
to better understand. And that doesn't mean I mean, you have compassion and empathy so you go soft on them. It's more like you, you, put, you put yourself to the side and you put yourself in their shoes and understand what they're feeling. And then you have to make certain decisions of, okay, what buttons do I need to push for this yeah. player to get them to the next level? So it's never, it's not sit around and all, it's all happy-go-lucky right. type of thing. Your leader, your job is to get the best out of them, um, even if you know, they may not like it at that time. One of the things that I had to learn is how to get the best out of my teammates. Yeah. And most people think it's a simple thing, you know, passing the ball. You know, but that's not how you make guys better. You have to really affect their behavior. How do you do that? So, yeah, you know, like, you know, I would tell guys, you got to back the backs. You know, I don't care if we're in Miami. I don't care if we're in a great city of Chicago. You can't go out. We got to get rest. Right? Back-to-back back games. Back-to-back back games, yeah. right? Monday, Tuesday. You play Monday and play again Tuesday. The guys aren't going to listen, right? You don't, you know. Right. So a few times I said, all right, we'll all go out. We'll go out <laughs> together. Really? I'm, I'll drink with you, right? But the next morning, I'm banging on your door at five in the morning. Let's go. They're not getting Where are we going? <laughs> I hung out with you. Now you come hang out with me. Wow. This is what we do, all right? Let's go. And we're at the gym. We're working out, right? We hit the bus. We go to practice. We play that night. And they're dead. And they're dead. And they're like, lesson learned. Really? <laughs> lesson so learned. Take them out once. Listen, if you're going to do that, do that. But don't let that compromise what we're here to do. Right. This is why we're here. This is why you're here in the first place. What does losing feel like to you? Uh, it's exciting. Why is it exciting? Um, because it means you have different um, ways to get better. There are certain things that you can figure out that you can take advantage of, right? Certain weaknesses that were exposed mm. um, that you need to shore up. Right, so it was exciting. I mean, it, I mean, it sucks to lose, right. but at the same time, there are answers there if you just look at them. I'll give you an example. So, uh, Katie Lou Samuelson is one of the best college basketball players in the country. She plays at UConn. She's going to be a senior, and uh, they just had a really tough season last year where they lost to Notre Dame in the final. And so, I asked her, I said, "Have you watched the Notre Dame game?" She was like, "No." So, well, why not? I said, "I don't want to watch that." I said, "I know you don't, but..." You're gonna play Notre Dame this year, yeah? Yeah. What's the chances you see him again in the final? Goes, well, you'll probably see him again. I said, well, you can't show up and play them without knowing why you lost that one, right? So, you know, it, it, the mistakes that you've made in that game, you have to do the hard stuff and watch that game and study that game to not make those mistakes over and over again just because you weren't brave enough to face it. So she came down to the office. I brought her down to the office and we sat down and we watched that game together. Wow. Right, and you gotta, you gotta deal with Face it. Face it. Gotta deal with it. Face it, learn from it. When you play for 20 years, I play for 20 years, you reach a certain level, you're like, okay, wait a minute, I have to start again at the base of a mountain and try to climb the top of this mountain. First of all, what mountain am I climbing? I don't even know, like, what the hell am I gonna be doing? And it'd be, it's, very, it's very scary. Mm. It's very scary. Even for you? Oh, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And the thing that helped me actually was hurting my Achilles. Because that forced me to sit there and say, okay, the day could be today that your career is over. Now what do you do? You have these ideas about doing something with your life after basketball, but what if today is the day that you, that's it. Now what do you do? So I had all this time sitting there with my Achilles injury and contemplating and thinking, and I said, I better get to work. <laughs> wow. That was that. The mentality book is, is really about 
um, process and craft. I've broken the book up into two sections. And process is really about the process of preparing, mm -hmm. you know, through injury, recovery, uh, studying of the game. And then the craft is the actual performance and the tactics. And so a lot of things that I learned uh, through the game were through photos. You can look at a photo wow. and see like a player making a move, look at the angle of his feet, look how he's using his hands on defense, and I can really break down things to the smallest detail through that. And that's what you'll see in this book. I mean, it's really a basketball Bible. You'll see how I break things down, like how I'm looking at things to the smallest of detail. Yeah. And uh, that's the best way to understand how to have that kind of mentality is to ask questions then find answers and then that lead to more questions and you find more answers and that's what yeah. the book is. So how can we teach our children what it means to work hard? Well, you do it through training, right? So when I get up in the morning, my daughter goes with me. 4 a.m.? 4 a.m. My 15-year-old goes with me. She wow. goes with me before school and it becomes a daddy-daughter thing. That's cool. She just got her permit, right? So she drives in the morning. It becomes a cool thing, right? But through that process, she understands the value of hard work and things taking time. And the same thing with my 12-year-old. Right? She practices every day. Right? And so it's through those behaviors um, um, is where I find the motivation to mm. do it. of people are not willing to do what it takes to make their dreams come true. The Marines have a saying, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. The center of bringing any dream into fruition is self-discipline. You know, some, something as simple as food and eating, it, it's not about your, your body as much as it is about your mind. It's getting command of your mind to be able to choose actions that are in your own best interest. Every day, we are choosing that's not in our own best interest. So if the world is attacking you and the world wants to fight you and the world's trying to hold you down, so you're gonna kick yourself in the balls? So you're gonna stop yourself from getting what you dream. And I think the word discipline has kind of gotten a, a bad name. We think about it in terms of punishment. I'm not, I'm not talking about discipline in that way. I'm talking about discipline in the sense that you, you forego immediate pleasure for the exchange of long-term self-respect. I believe that self-discipline is the definition of self-love. That when you say that you love yourself, that means that you have behavior towards yourself that is loving. Self-discipline is the center of all material success. You cannot win the war against the world if you can't win the war against your own mind. Self-love is when you say to yourself, oh, man, look, I know you and that girl got a real connection. Um, I know y'all vibe, but that's your girl's cousin. So I love you too much to let you do that. It's like you say to yourself, hey, man, look, 
I know you want to eat that pizza and it'll be really good, you know, but I can't let you eat that, man, because if, if you eat that pizza, you're going to feel like shit. You know, and I, I just, I love you too much to let you eat that. Self-love is, hey, look, I know you got a, a, a test on Monday, you know, and I know you really want to go out with your friends and Saturday night you want to go out, but if you fail that test, you're not going to feel good about yourself. You know, I just, I love you too much to let you go out tonight. Self-discipline is self-love. If you want to be happy, you have to love yourself, which means you have to discipline your behavior. The road to sustained happiness is through disciplining your behavior. We tend to base our self-esteem on what other people think. And that's not really self-esteem. Self-esteem is supposed to be how we feel about ourselves and I was just saying how dangerous it is to allow other people to determine how you're going to feel about you and it's kind of like looking into a broken mirror you're going to look in a broken mirror and then change your face to try to look good in this defiled busted broken mirror and it's just other people's opinions is a really way to determine how we feel about ourselves. It don't matter whose fault it is that something is broken if it's your responsibility to fix it. For example, it's not somebody's fault if their father was an abusive alcoholic but it's for damn sure their responsibility to figure out how they're gonna deal with those traumas and try to make a life out of it. It's not your fault if your partner cheated and ruined your marriage, but it is for damn sure your responsibility to figure out how to take that pain and how to overcome that and build a happy life for yourself. Fault and responsibility do not go together, it sucks. But they don't. When something is somebody's fault, we want them to suffer. We want them punished. We want them to, to pay. We want it to be their responsibility to fix it. But that's, that's not how it works, especially when it's your heart. Your heart, your life, your happiness is your responsibility and your responsibility alone. As long as we're pointing the finger and, and, and stuck in whose fault something is, we're jammed and trapped into victim mode. When you're in victim mode, you're stuck in suffering. The road to power is in taking responsibility. Your heart, your life, your happiness is your responsibility and your responsibility alone. You can make a person smile, you can make a person feel good, you can make a person laugh, but whether or not a person is happy is deeply and totally and utterly out of your control. The prerequisite for spending time with any person is that they nourish and inspire you. They feed your flame. Look at your last five text messages. Are those people feeding your flames or dousing your fire? 
put your phone down for just a second and look around. Look to the people around you. Are those people throwing logs on your fire or are they pissing on it? I want my life, I want my, my work, uh, my, my family, I want it to mean something. And it's like, it has, if, if you are not making someone else's life better, then you're wasting your time. The separation of talent and skill is one of the, 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 the greatest misunderstood concepts for people who are trying to excel, who have dreams that want to do things. Talent you have naturally. Skill is only developed by hours and hours and hours of beating on your craft. You, you don't try to build a wall. You don't set out to build a wall. You don't say, I'm going to build the biggest, baddest, greatest wall that's ever been built. You don't start there. You say, I'm going to lay this brick as perfectly as a brick can be laid. There will not be one brick on the face of the earth that's going to be laid better than this brick that I'm going to lay in this next 10 minutes. And you do that every single day. And soon you have a wall. And soon you have a wall. And I think psychologically, the advantage that that, that gives me over, over a lot of people that I've I'm, have been in competition with in different situations is it's difficult to take the first step when you look how big yeah, exactly. the, the task is. The definition of who I am is very clear to me and it also redefines who I want to be in that I know for a fact that I'm stronger than I thought I was, you know? You can't help but ask yourself the question, what would I do if I was in Muhammad Ali's shoes? I'm, I'm motivated by fear. I hate being scared to do something. And I think what developed uh, in, my, in my early days was the, the attitude that I started attacking things that I was scared of. Why were you scared in your bed the night before? Why did you, what do you need that fear for? Just don't go. Why are you scared in your bed 16 hours before you jump? Why are you scared in the car? Why could you not enjoy breakfast? Fear is, fear of what? You're nowhere even near the airplane. Everything up to the stepping out there's actually no reason to be scared. It only just ruins your day. You're, you don't have to jump. And then in that moment, all of a sudden, where you should be terrified is the most blissful experience of your life. And God placed the best things in life on the other side of terror. Who do you know on TV? I said, nobody. 
She said, anybody in this school ever been on TV? I said, no, ma'am. She said, anybody in your neighborhood ever been on TV? I said, no, ma'am. She said, well, what makes you think you can be on TV? And she crushed me. I'm going to try to share with you what I've learned in my lifetime. All the difficulties, all the ups and downs, all the mistakes, everything I've learned from it. I'm going to just put it in a condensed package. Sixth grade now. 1968, I'm 10. They sitting up there and uh, people started standing up. Uh, Brenda, Brenda wants to be a doctor. Larry wants to be a lawyer. So I stood up and I'm thinking to myself, it is here. This is a gold star moment right here. Oh uh, yeah, this is, this is the day I've been waiting on. I'm gonna get recognized for the brilliant cat that I am. And, and it's no doubt in their mind now who the star student of this school is. Cause I done put something on my paper that was unbelievable. Because nobody had wrote on their paper, I want to be on TV. I get up in front of the class. She said, what did you write on your paper? This is big. I said, I want to be on TV. She said, why did you write that on your paper? I said, because that was our assignment for today. <laughs> she said, and what made you think you could write such a thing on your paper? Who do you know on TV? I said, nobody. She said, anybody in this school ever been on TV? I said, no, ma'am. She said, anybody in your neighborhood ever been on TV? I said, no, ma'am. She said, well, what makes you think you can be on TV? And she crushed me. I said, I don't know, but that's what I want to do. She said, I'm going to call your house and I'm going to tell your mother that you're a smart aleck. So when I got home, she on the front porch. And she said, what did you do up at that school? I said, well, mama, I just did what she asked me to do. She asked me what I wanted to be. I wrote, I want to be, I want to be, I want, I want to be on TV. She said, why did you write that on the paper? I said, because mama, that's what I want to be. She said, when your daddy get home, I'm going to tell him you've been up at the school being a smart aleck. So he comes home, he takes his bath, and he's reading the paper. And afterwards, he said, boy, come in here. He said, what is this your mama telling me you did up at the school? And she's standing there. Tell him what you did. And I said, I wrote on a piece of paper, I want to be on TV. He said, what you do that for? I said, because that's what the teacher asked us, Daddy, what we want to be. She said, and you're being up there being smart, he going to put a smart answer, he want to be on TV. My father looked at me and said, well, what's wrong with that? He was going, well, slick, he got to be more reasonable like the teacher said. He said, well, Bill, that don't make no sense if that's what the boy want to be. She said, he can't do what he want to do, got to do like the teacher said. He said, boy, go in your room. So come in the room a little bit later on. He said, boy, what you write on your paper? I said, I want to be on TV. He said, well, what she want you to put on the paper? I said, I don't know, daddy, like a policeman or ball player or something. That's what all the rest of the boys would. He said, well, put that on the paper. And take it back up to the dream killing health. So he said, now take that paper and put it in your drawer. He said, every night before you go to bed, read your paper. He said, every morning when you get up and go to school, read your paper. I did it. If you turn on your television set seven days a week, I'm on there somewhat because that is a principle of success that all successful people know. If it is written socially, that's the deal. If you don't have what you want in life, just check yourself. Is it written anywhere? Have you wrote it down? Have you claimed it? Have you laid it into faith? Have you willed it into existence? 
Has it become a law? Did you write it down? If it ain't written down, what you want? And what I learned was that success that all successful people know, we write it down. It's a vision board. You got to have vision boards, man. Y'all to see what's on my laptop and my computer. Even I, I still have visions. A man without a dream or vision shall pass. You've all heard this. I just try to put it in a way where it's real talk. See, writing it down makes it doable. If you go through a school zone doing 35 miles per hour and the police stop you and a truck was blocking the sign that said 20 miles an hour, guess what? You still get the ticket. You know why? Because it's a written law. They put it into law. They wrote it down. The fact that you ain't read it, the fact that you didn't see the sign, tough. It's written. 20. You break the law, 20. You got to write it down. That's an important thing. Here's a cold thing I learned. You got to fix your mindset. You change that. The moment you change your thought, your attitude determines your altitude. The moment you change your thought is the moment you change your existence. A flea is the smallest insect, one of the world's smallest insects. Do you know that a flea has a 36-inch vertical? That's pretty high. The average human being cannot jump 36 inches. If you take that insect and you capture it and put it in a jar and put the lid on it, that insect still has a 36-inch vertical. You know what it does? It jumps 36 inches, but it hits its head and gets knocked back down. So, he makes an adjustment. Since I'm getting knocked back down, I'm not going to jump my full potential. I'm just going to jump just enough so I don't get knocked back down. If you get another flea and capture it, the flea goes into the jar. The flea again, another flea, has a 36-inch vertical. But because he's in the jar and he's seen what happens when he hits his head and he gets knocked by that? He duplicates what he sees the other flea doing. And he jumps just high enough where he don't hit his head. The sad thing about it is when these fleas have babies, these fleas are born with a 36-inch vertical. But because they live in the job with their mama and their daddy and they got a 36-inch vertical, but they see everybody else jumping just so high, they duplicate, becomes generational, it gets passed down. The parent ain't got enough sense to say, hey, I messed up my jump, but you know, you can still go 36. Your brain is your lid. If you take the lid off, the potential in every one of us is expansive. It's unbelievable. Imagination is everything. It's the preview to life's coming attractions. You know what that means? Everything was once a thought. That's what that means. Let your imagination go. Open up your mind. Trip a little bit. The Wright brothers were sitting around one day and said, hey, I'm going to fly like a bird. Some people said, come here, man. Tell what this dude just said. Tell him what you just said. I'm going to fly like a bird. <laughs> I flew in here today. If imagination is everything, why not use yours? The possibilities in your life are endless, man. In order to be successful, you have to jump. It's like you stand on the edge of a cliff. In order to be successful, you got to jump. Everybody in here got to jump. If you don't jump, you can't be successful. The problem is, when you jump, you don't know if the parachute is going to open. So fear freezes you. The fear of failure, you've all heard all this stuff. I just have a different way of putting it. The fear of failure is the number one cause of failure. It freezes you. 
But let me explain something to you. If you don't jump, here's the one thing that's guaranteed. When you jump, you don't know if your parachute will open. But here's a fact. If you don't jump, it ain't opening for sure. It don't open at all. There's no chance of you enjoying the ride. But now here's the deal when you jump. Listen to this. It ain't, I will tell you this. It ain't gonna open right away. I promise you that. When you jump, it's not opening right away. Oh, you're gonna get cut up because the parachute is not going to open right away. But see, and your parachute is success. Success. When you experience success, it, it opens the parachute. And now that fall is now a ride. It's an incredible ride. Your view is different. You see people on parachutes in the air all the time. You see them on TMZ. You cut on TV shows and watch people live their life. Stop watching people live your live a life you could be living. Jump. Jump. You got to jump. What you waiting on? It's safe right here, but it ain't about nothing right here. Living is different from existing. If you want to live, you got to jump. Just jump out there. But you got to jump. You got no life standing on this cliff. Looking over, looking at everybody fly by, soar through the air like birds. You got to jump, man. That's the cold part. You got to jump. If you ain't never jumped, you don't even know if your shoot work. You got to jump. You don't jump? Well, sit there. Parachute on your back. Safe. You good? You existing? I chose to jump. If your job is to try to be the best basketball player you can be, mm -hmm. right? To do that, you have to practice, you have to train, right? You want to train as much as you can, as often as you can. So if you get up at 10 in the morning, train at 11, right? 12, say 12, train at 12, train for two hours, 12 to two. Um, you have to let your body recover. So you eat, recover, whatever. You get back out, you train, start training again at six. Train from six to eight, right? And now you go home, you shower, you eat dinner, you go to bed, you wake up, you do it again, right? Those are two sessions, right? Now imagine you wake up at three, you train at four, you go four to six, come home, breakfast, relax, so, so, blah, blah, blah. Now you're back at it again, nine to 11, right? You relax and now all of a sudden you're back at it again, two to four, and now you're back at it again, you know, seven to nine. Look how much more training I have done by simply starting at four, right? And so now you do that and as the years go on, the separation that you have with your competitors and your peers just grows larger and larger and larger and larger and larger. And by year five or six, it doesn't matter how, what kind of work they do in the summer, they're never going to catch up because they're five years behind. <laughs> right? So it makes sense to get up and start your day early because you can get more work in. I didn't feel good about myself if I wasn't doing everything I could to be the best version of myself. If I felt like I left anything on the table, um, it would eat away at me. I wouldn't be able to look myself in the mirror. Right? So the reason why I can retire now and be completely comfortable about it because I know that I've done everything I could to be the best basketball player I could be. Um, and so that's where it comes from for me. You can't leave any stone unturned. Trivial things weren't gonna pull my attention. It had to be things, weren't gonna pull my attention. It had to be things that were, I had a purpose. I wanted to be one of the best basketball players to ever play. 
and anything else that was outside of that lane, I didn't have time for. At, at what age did that goal become crystal clear? That I, made, I made that deal with myself at 13 years old. At 13 years 13 old? 13 years old. That's the you deal I made. You were crystal clear about it? Crystal clear. And where did inspiration come from? Um, the love of the game. The love of the game. The challenge. Like, I, I would watch Magic play. I'd watch Michael play. And I would see them do these unbelievable things. And I'd say, you know, can I get to that level? I don't know, but let's find out. If I could work that hard every day um, with the, being blessed with the physical tools that I have, um, what would my career be? And I made a promise to myself from that day that I was going to work that hard every single day so that when I do retire, I have no regrets. And that was the most important thing for me is to leave no stone unturned, get better every single day. And if I live that way, then over time, you know, I'd have something that was beautiful. But that was my philosophy. It seems like a pretty simple one, but you know, if you live your life to just get better every single day, you do that for 20 years, I mean, what do you have? Follow your passion first. First, 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 first. Um, you know, when I retired from the game, I sat there asking kind of all the wrong questions. You know, what's the biggest industry I can get into? And it's all the wrong stuff. And you got to sit there and ask yourself, okay, what am I truly passionate about? What do I enjoy doing? And when you feel that way, I, honestly, I mean, you feel like you have never worked a day in your life. It's the most fun thing in the world. You get up in the morning excited about what you're doing. And you got to be really honest with yourself about it. If you wake up in the morning and you're dreading going to work, dude, do something else. <laughs> do something else and those are hard decisions to make but when you make those decisions it's a very liberating experience and you'll find out that the rewards will come you know basketball for me was the most important thing so everything I saw whether it was TV shows whether it was books I read people I talked to everything was done to try to learn how to become a better basketball player everything everything and so when you have that point of view then literally the world becomes your library to help you to become better at your craft. The competitiveness that I um, bring to work every day is really helping people, in a sense, be competitive with themselves, right? If you're, if you're animating something or, or um, you're writing a screenplay or you're composing a piece of music, is that the best you can do? Right? Don't ask me. Don't say, okay, do you approve? Don't ask me. I'm not the musician. I'm not the composer. You know. Right? So the competitiveness is more from an individual perspective. Are you, is this the best you can do? And uh, if the answer is yes, then off we go. We talk about this often, and we always talk about the fact that you can learn a lot more from the failures than you can from the successes. And you have to figure out where those landmines are and then how to best avoid those or put or help entrepreneurs and ourselves included um, figure out the clues of where those landmines are. You know, not that you're going to avoid all of them, right? Um, but it's also when you do step on one, figuring out, okay, how do you recuperate? How do you balance back and you know pick yourself up? Dreams is uh, they should be pure. I, I think a lot of times you know, when we're born into this world, we actually wind up going backwards, and it seems like the more we mature. The more responsible our dreams become and the more governors we put on ourselves and our ability to dream and to reimagine and it's always a fight for us parents and you know for you guys to make sure that your dreams always stay pure 
So it's not a matter of, of, um, of pushing beyond your limitations or expectations. It's really a matter of protecting your dreams, protecting your imagination. That's really the key. And when you do that, then the world just seems limitless. Passion came from the love for the game. You know, I, I loved everything about it, like the smell of the ball. You love the smell of the ball? Yes, the ball. <laughs> you know, the smell of like brand new sneakers, and, like the sound the ball makes when it hits the ground. Yeah, the ball going through the net, like all those things I, I love. And so the passion comes from that, because once you have that love, you just want to be a part of this thing all the time. I think the best way to prove your, your value is to work, is to learn, is to absorb, to be a sponge. You always want to outwork your potential. As hard as you believe you can work, you can work harder than that. If your practices aren't more competitive than the games themselves, you're doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And most of these teams and coaches have gotten into a mindset of resting players. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a, too much. You know, we're not going to practice light day, light day, light day. Phil never gave us a light day. Mm -hmm. There's no days off. You show up and you work. Yeah. You practice. Yeah. And practices are going to be worse. They're yeah. going to be more physical. There's going to be more trash talking. And I'm going to let you know. Right? Yeah. If you, you didn't show up today, I'm going to let you know. Yeah. And it's going to be embarrassing. And you're going to hate it. Um, but when game seven rolls around the NBA finals, you will be prepared. Rolled my ankle really, really bad. I came back, finished the series. But I couldn't touch a basketball until mid-September, which was driving me crazy because I couldn't train. Mm -hmm. But I looked at this was like the tenth time I rolled my ankle in one season. So I'm looking at that and I'm saying, okay, I got to address that. And so be, being that I couldn't get on the basketball court, um, what I did was I took tap dancing lessons. <laughs> okay. No kidding. I took tap. And tap was like the best training for me in the world because it strengthened my feet. It changed my rhythm and my approach to the game. I was able to change speeds when I came back the following season. Um, and I think dancers um, put way more strain on their body than athletes do. And I think there's a lot that can be learned from that. My daughter took ballet for several years and I would sit there in the class, right? And I didn't know what I was getting into because I don't know anything about ballet, right? But I'm sitting there in the class and I'm watching her and I'm watching her get the first position, the second position. I'm, start, I'm learning the structure and the rules that go along with that. And as athletes, there's a lot to be learned from that. Because if you simply go out there and perform and play, yeah, you'll be great every now and then. But if you play with structure, if you understand the rules that come along with that, the discipline that comes along with that, then you reach another level. But you guys have my respect. If other people that don't see that, they're idiots. At 13 years old, I had a, um, <laughs> I had a kill list. And so, you know, they used to do these rankings. It was Street and Smith basketball rankings. And I was nowhere to be found because I was like 6'4", scrawny, like 160 pounds soaking wet. So I was like 57 on the list. And so I will look at 56, 55, all the way up to number one, who these players are, what club teams they played for. So when we go on an AAU travel circuit, I, I got to hunt them down. Right, and so that became my mission in high school, is to check off every other person, all those 56 other names, hunt them down and knock them down. You know, the game is just a part of me. Um, so it never leaves, even now that I'm retired, you know, I, I, everything that I've learned from the game of basketball, I've carried it over into life. Mm -hmm. You know, like basketball's helped me be a better person, a better friend, a better How so? father. Well, because there's life lessons that are within the game, mm -hmm. like communication like unselfishness, um, like attention to detail, and um, 
empathy and compassion, like all those things are in the game. And uh, as an athlete, if we are aware of those things, um, it helps us become better human, human beings. Number one, put God first. Put God first in everything you do. Everything that you think you see in me, everything that I've accomplished, everything that you think I have, and I have a few things, everything that I have is by the grace of God. Understand that. It's a gift. 40 years ago, March 27th, 1975, it was 40 years ago, uh, just this past March, I was flunking out of college. I had a 1.7 grade point average. I hope none of you can relate. <laughs> I had a 1.7 grade point average. I was sitting in my mother's beauty shop. They still call it beauty shop now? What do they call it now? Yeah, I was sitting in the beauty parlor. I was sitting in my mother's beauty parlor and I'm looking in the mirror and I see behind me this woman under the dryer and every time she looked up she every time I looked up she was looking at me just looking me in the eye and I didn't know who she was and I said you know she said somebody give me a pen give me a pencil I have a prophecy March 27 1975 she said boy you are gonna travel the world and speak to millions of people now mind you I flunked out of college I'm thinking about joining the army. I didn't know what I was going to do. And she's telling me I'm going to travel the world and speak to millions of people. Well, I have traveled the world. And I have spoke to millions of people. But that's not the most important thing, the success that I had. The most important thing is that what she taught me and what she told me that day has stayed with me since. I've been protected. I've been directed. I've been corrected. I've kept God in my life and has kept me humble. I didn't always stick with him, but he always stuck with me. So stick with him in everything you do. If you think you want to do what you think I've done, then do what I've done and stick with God. Number two, fail big. That's right. Fail big. Today is the beginning of the rest of your life, and it can, be, it can be very frightening. It's a new world out there. It's a mean world out there, and you only live once. So do what you feel passionate about, passionate about. Take chances professionally. Don't be afraid to fail. There's an old IQ test was nine dots, and you had to draw five lines with a pencil within these nine dots without lifting the pencil. The only way to do it was to go outside the box. So don't be afraid to go outside the box. Don't be afraid to think outside the box. Don't be afraid to fail big, to dream big. But remember, dreams without goals are just dreams. And they ultimately fuel 
disappointment. So have dreams, but have goals, life goals, yearly goals, monthly goals, daily goals. I try to give myself a goal every day. Sometimes just to not curse somebody out. <laughs> Simple goals, but have goals. And understand that to achieve these goals, you must apply discipline and consistency. In order to achieve your goals, you must apply discipline, which you have already done, and consistency every day, not just on Tuesday and miss a few days. You have to work at it every day. You have to plan every day. You've heard the saying, we don't plan to fail, we fail to plan. Hard work works. Working really hard is what successful people do. And in this text, tweet, twerk world that you've grown up in, <laughs> remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Remember that. Just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. My mother told me, she said, yeah, because you can run in place all the time and never get anywhere. So continue to strive, continue to have goals, continue to progress. Number three, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. I'll say it again. You'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. I don't care how much money you make, you can't take it with you. The Egyptians tried it. They got robbed. That's all they got. You can't take it with you. With you. And it's not how much you have. It's what you do with what you have. We all have different talents. Some of you will be doctors, some lawyers, some scientists, some educators, some nurses, some teachers. Yeah, okay. <laughs> some preachers. The most selfish thing you can do in this world is help someone else. Why is it selfish? Because the gratification, the goodness that comes to you, the good feeling, the good feeling that I get from helping others. Nothing's better than that. Well, one or two things, but nothing's better than that. Not, not jewelry, not big house I have, not the cars, but the, the, it's the joy. That's where the joy is in helping others. That's where the success is in helping others. Finally, I pray that you put your slippers way under the bed tonight so that when you wake up in the morning, you have to get on your knees to reach them. And while you're down there, say thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you in advance 
for what's already yours. It's how I live my life. That's why I, why I am, one of the reasons why I am today. Say thank you in advance for what is already yours. True desire in the heart for anything good is God's proof to you sent beforehand to indicate that it's yours already. I'll say it again. True desire in the heart, that itch that you have, whatever it is you want to do, that thing that you want to do to help others and to, to grow and to make money, that desire, that itch, that's God's proof to you, sent beforehand already to indicate that it's yours. And anything you want good, you can have. So claim it. Work hard to get it. When you get it, reach back. Pull someone else up. Each one, teach one. Don't just aspire to make a living. Aspire to make a difference. Every failed experiment is one step closer to success. You've got to take risks, and I'm sure you've probably heard that before, but I want to talk to you about why that's so important. I got three reasons, and then you can pick up your iPhones. First, you will fail at some point in your life. Accept it. You will lose. You will embarrass yourself. You will suck at something. There's no doubt about it. And I know that's probably not a traditional message for a graduation ceremony, but hey, I'm telling you, embrace it, because it's inevitable. And I should know. In the acting business, you fail all the time. Early on in my career, I auditioned for a part in a Broadway musical. Perfect role for me, I thought, except for the fact that I can't sing. <laughs> so I'm, I'm in the wings. I'm about to go on stage. But the guy in front of me, he's singing like, like, like Pavarotti. He's just, and he's just going on and on and on. And I'm just shrinking. I'm getting smaller and smaller. So they say, oh, thank you very much, thank you very much, and you'll be hearing from us. So I come out with my little sheet music, and it was just my imagination by the Temptations. That's what I came up with. So I hand it to the accompanist, and she looks at it and looks at me and looks out at the director and is like, nice. So I start, you know, I'm going to sing. I'm like, it's just my imagination once again and then coming away with me and I'm not saying anything so I'm thinking I'm getting better so I, I could start getting into it it was just my imagination thank you thank you thank you very much Mr. Washington thank you so I assumed I didn't get the job but the next part of the audition, he called me back. The next part of the audition is the acting part of the audition. Now I'm like, hey, okay, maybe I can't sing, but I know I can act. So they pair me with this guy. And again, I didn't know about musical theater. And musical theater is big, so they can reach everyone all the way in the back of the, of the stadium. And I'm more from a realistic, uh, naturalistic kind of acting where you, you, know, you actually talk to the person next to you. So I, I don't know what my line was. My line was, well, hand me the cup. And his line was, 
Well, I will hand you the cup, my dear. The cup will be there to be handed to you. And I said, okay. <laughs> well, should I give you the cup back? Oh, yes, you should give it back to me because you know that is my cup and it should be given back to me. I didn't get the job. But here's the thing, I didn't quit, I didn't fall back, I walked out of there to prepare for the next audition and the next audition and the next audition. I prayed, I prayed and I prayed, but I continued to fail and fail and fail, but it didn't matter because you know what, there's an old saying. You hang around the barbershop long enough, sooner or later you're going to get a haircut. So you will catch a break, and I did catch a break. Last year, I did a play called Fences on Broadway. Someone talked about it. Won the Tony Award. I, and I didn't have to sing, by the way. <laughs> but here's the kicker. It was at the court theater. It was at the same theater that I failed that first audition 30 years prior. The, the point is, and I'll pick up the pace, the point is every graduate here today has the training and the talent to succeed. But do you have the guts to fail? Here's my second point about failure. If you don't fail, you're not even trying. I'll say it again. If you don't fail, you're not even trying. My wife told me this great expression. To get something you never had, you have to do something you never did. Les Brown's a motivational speaker. He made an analogy about this. He says, imagine you're on your deathbed and standing around your deathbed are the ghosts representing your unfulfilled potential. The ghost of the ideas you never acted on. The ghost of the talents you didn't use. And they're standing around your bed angry, disappointed, and upset. They say, we, we came to you because you could have brought us to life, they say. And now we have to go to the grave together. So I ask you today, how many ghosts are going to be around your bed when your time comes? You've, invest, you, you've invested a lot in your education and people have invested in you. And let me tell you, the world needs your talents, man, does it ever. I just got back from Africa like two days ago, so if I'm rambling on, it's because I'm jet lagged. I just got back from South Africa. It's a beautiful country, but there are places there with terrible poverty that need help. And Africa is just the tip of the iceberg. The Middle East needs your help. Japan needs your help. Alabama needs your help. Tennessee needs your help. Louisiana needs your help. Philadelphia needs your help. The world. The world needs a lot and we need it from you. We really do. We need it from you young people. I mean, I'm not speaking for the rest of us up here, but I know I'm getting a little grayer. We need it from you, the young people, because remember this. So you got to get out there. You got to give it everything you got, whether it's your time, your, your, your talent, your prayers, or your treasures. Because remember this.
You will never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. I'll say it again. You will never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. The Egyptians tried it. And all they got was robbed. So the question is, what are you going to do with what you have? I'm not talking about how much you have. Some of you are business majors, some of you are theologians, nurses, sociologists, some of you have money, some of you have patience, some of you have kindness, some of you have love, some of you have the gift of long-suffering, whatever it is, whatever your gift is, what are you going to do with what you have? All right, now here's my last point about failure. Sometimes it's the best way to figure out where you're going. Your life will never be a straight path. I began at Fordham University as a pre-med student. I, 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 I took a course called the car, cardiac morphogenesis. I still can't say it. Cardiac, cardiac morphogenesis. I couldn't read it. I couldn't say it. I sure couldn't pass it. <laughs> so then I decided to go into pre-law, then journalism. And with no academic focus, my grades took off in their own direction. Yeah, down. I was a 1.8 GPA one semester, and the university very politely suggested that it might be better to take some time off. I was 20 years old. I was at my lowest point. And then one day, and I remember the exact day, March 27, 1975, I was helping my mother in her beauty shop. My mother owned a beauty shop up in Mount Vernon. And there's, there was this older woman who was uh, considered one of the elders in the town. And I didn't know her personally, but I, I was looking in the mirror. And every time I looked at the mirror, I could see her behind me. And she was staring at me. She just kept looking at me. Every time I looked at her, she kept giving me these strange looks. So she finally took the dryer off her head and said, to some, she said something I'll never forget. First of all, she said, somebody give me a piece of paper. Give me a piece of paper. She said, young boy, I have a prophecy, a spiritual prophecy. She said, you are going to travel the world and speak to millions of people. Now, mind you, I'm 20 years old. I'm flunked out of school. In fact, like a wise ass, I'm thinking to myself, maybe she's got something in that crystal ball about me getting back into school next fall. <laughs> but maybe she was on to something because later that summer, while working as a counselor at a YMCA camp in Connecticut, we put on a talent show for the campers. And after the show, another counselor came up to me and asked, have you ever thought about acting? You're good at that. So when I got back to Fordham that fall, I got in and I changed my major once again for the last time. And in the years that followed, just as that woman prophesied, I have traveled the world and I have spoken to millions of people through my movies. Millions who up till this day couldn't see me, I, who, who up till this day I couldn't see while I was talking to them, and they couldn't see me. They could only see the movie. They couldn't see the real me. But I see you today, and I'm encouraged by what I see. And I'm strengthened by what I see. And I love what I see.
One more page, and I'll shut up. Let me conclude with this one final point, and actually the president kind of brought it up, it has to do with the movie Philadelphia. She stole my material. <laughs> Many years ago, I did this movie called Philadelphia. We filmed some of the scenes right here on campus. Philadelphia came out in 1993. Most of you are probably still in diapers. Some of the professors, too. <laughs> but <laughs> that cracked me up. <laughs> but it was a good movie. Rent it on, uh, what do you call it, Netflix. It's a good movie. Rent it. I get 23 cents every time you rent it, please. Rent it. <laughs> True. Parents up there, rent, rent, rent it. Netflix, please. Tell your friends, too. It's about a man played by Tom Hanks who's fired from his law firm because he has AIDS. He wants to sue the firm, but no one's willing to represent him until a homophobic ambulance chaser, lawyer, played by yours truly, takes on the case. In a way, if you watch the movie, you'll see everything I'm talking about today. You'll see what I mean about taking risk or being willing to fail. Because taking risk is not just about going for a job. It's also about knowing what you know and what you don't know. It's about being open to people and to ideas. In the course of the film, the character I play begins to take small steps, small risks. He very, very, very slowly begins to overcome his fears. And I feel ultimately his heart becomes flooded with love. And I can't think of a better message as we send you off today to not only take risks, but to be open to life, to accept new views, and to be open to new opinions, to be willing to speak at a commencement at one of the best, country, best universities in the country, even though you're scared stiff. While it may be frightening, it will also be rewarding. Because the chances you take, the people you meet, the people you love, the faith that you have, that's what's going to define you. So members of the class of 2011, this is your mission. When you leave the friendly confines of Philly, never be discouraged, never hold back, give everything you got. And when you fall throughout life, and remember this, fall forward.